0: morning everyone i'll be reading from john chapter 9 verses 1 to 41 as he walked along he saw a man blind from birth his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind jesus answered neither this man nor his parents sin he was born blind so that god's work might be revealed in him we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work as long as i'm in the world i'm the light of the world when he said this he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes saying to him go wash in a pool of siloam which means scent then he went and washed and came back able to see The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath day. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them is this your son who you say was born blind how then he now see his parents answered we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but we do not know how it is now he sees nor do we know who opened his eyes ask him he is of age he will speak for himself his parents said his parents said this because they were afraid of the jews For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that I was blind. Now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Then the man answered, here is is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys him. Never since the world began it, it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of the person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entoy- entirely in sins, and are you, te- are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they have driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind some of the pharisees near him heard this and said to him surely we are not blind are we jesus said to them if you were blind you would not have sin but now that you say we see your sin remains happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers but their delight is the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate, mediate, meditate, sorry, day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season. And their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they they prosper. The wicked are, are not so, but are like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will
1: perish. So Ernest Hemingway, the great American author, apparently used to tell his children that you make your own luck. And I've always felt that this philosophy has a certain compelling logic to it. I mean, sure. To be lucky, you have to be in the right place at the right time. But if you never put yourself out there, you will never be in that right place when luck comes knocking at your door. It's a bit like the similar quote attributed to Woody Allen, suggesting that 80% of success is just turning up. If you hide in your room forever, you're unlikely to meet the person who transforms your world. But is it true that you make your own luck? Does life really work that way? Is there some immutable law at work which rewards people for their faithful efforts? Professor Richard Wiseman, And let's just take a moment to appreciate how amazing his name is for a professor. Professor Richard Wiseman ran a study a few years ago on why some people appear to be consistently lucky or unlucky. And he concluded that for many people, the key to unlocking good luck lies in a person's approach to life. He identified four attitudes shared by those who experience luck in life. Firstly, he says, those who expect good fortune often experience it, or at least report having experienced it. Secondly, he says, good luck seems to come to those who maximise their chances of experiencing it by creating, noticing, acting on opportunities, putting yourself out there, turning up. Thirdly, he says from his survey, people who listen to their gut feelings and act on hunches often feel that they have been lucky in the outcomes. And fourthly, people who experience themselves as lucky tend to cope with bad luck by turning it around, by maybe imagining how things could have been far worse, rather than getting stuck on the fact that things aren't quite as good as one had hoped they might be. So there we are, science says you can indeed make your own luck, which is all fine, of course, until that one day when suddenly... It isn't anymore, because as we all know, even if someone spends a lot of effort stacking the odds in their favor, keeping their weight down, exercising regularly, never smoking, eating their fruit and veg or whatever, none of this is any guarantee that the cancer cell won't suddenly start multiplying. And no amount of putting yourself out there at the right place will actually guarantee that you'll be there at the right time. You may be able to improve your chances of being lucky, but as any gambler at the roulette table will tell you, winning streaks don't really last, and the house always wins in the end. Well, Hemingway, Allen, and Wiseman aren't the first people to contemplate whether there is some relationship between what we do and the way we experience the falling of the cards of life. The ancient Hebrews also sought for meaning in life, and for them the question of theology was central to the answers that they sought. The book of Deuteronomy suggests that there is a system for winning or losing at life, and that this system is based on the immutable laws of God's creation And this system is very simple. If you remain faithful and obedient to God, you will be blessed. But if you are faithless and disobedient, you will experience trouble and trauma. That is the system for winning or losing at life as set forth in the book of Deuteronomy. This system is known by theologians as the Deuteronomic perspective because it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And once you're alert to it, you can find it cropping up time and again throughout the Bible as the rising and falling fortunes of the nation of Israel are correlated with observations about Israel's faithfulness or disobedience to God, to the demands of the covenant, to the laws of the Lord. And we can find it even in the New Testament in that question asked of Jesus by his disciples when they encountered the man born blind. The question recorded in John 9 was classic deuteronomic perspective. Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? The underlying assumption is clear. If someone has misfortune in their life or family or health, they must have in some way brought it on themselves, either them or their parents. They have failed, so to speak. To make their own luck and instead by sinning have made their own bad luck. We even get echoes of this deuteronomic perspective in some strands of contemporary Christian theology. There are plenty of preachers around who teach a doctrine of health and wealth, the so-called prosperity gospel, where uh, those who give faithfully to the church are promised that they will be rewarded with wealth in return. Well, I clearly want to encourage all of you to give faithfully to the church, but I'm afraid I can't make any promises about repayments of health or wealth on that one. But health, wealth and prosperity gospel teaching will suggest to those who, dare I say, fall for it, that if you live Faithfully, accordingly to the commands of the church, you will get healing and health and wealth and prosperity. And again, this all works fine, right up until the moment when it doesn't anymore. Another place where we get this Deuteronomic perspective is in some of the Psalms, including our reading for this morning from Psalm 1. We're beginning a short summer series now, looking at a selection of the Psalms. Um, I'm going to be preaching through these. I've got a number of Sundays when I'm not here over the next few months. So when it's me, you'll be getting a psalm. When it's somebody else, you'll probably be getting something else. But as we shall discover as we go through the Psalms, um, there are other perspectives within the Psalter, within the Book of Psalms on life's fortune and misfortune, which grapple with why it is that Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. But this week, we're beginning at the beginning. And we're beginning with Psalm 1, a psalm that is deeply rooted in this cause and effect logic that equates obedience with blessing and disobedience with disaster. And my first question, as we come to look in a bit more detail now at Psalm 1, is the question of who who is it, who on earth was it, that was writing this stuff. It's always a good idea to try and contextualise a passage from the Bible before we start to try and apply it to our lives today. And there are a few clues available to help us here. Firstly, we can observe that this psalm was written for people who are literate, There is an expectation in the psalm that in order to be blessed, you will meditate on God's law day and night, which infers an ability to read the books of the law in the first place. So we might conclude that Psalm 1 is written for and presumably by the educated elite of ancient Israel. Literacy was far from widespread in those days. Secondly it also seems to have been written for those with a bit of time on their hands because not only does the psalm expect that you will be able to read the word of the Lord but that you will be able to meditate on it day and night. This psalm doesn't target those who are out working in the fields all day and then collapsing into bed exhausted just as the sun goes down. Rather it's written for those who have free time. And it wants to make sure that they use that time in a certain way, meditating on the law of the Lord. Thirdly, I would observe that its use of um, agrarian imagery, its language of farming, is a little bit on the idealized side. You know, it envisages verdant trees planted by fresh flowing water consistently yielding their fruit in season. There's no recognition here that most trees in Israel eke out their existence on bare hillsides with failed harvests and ever-present threat and irrigation a constant task. This isn't written by a farmer. Rather this psalm presents the metronomic turning of the seasons as a somewhat romanticized metaphor for human existence, with those who meditate on the law of God day and night, flourishing and bearing fruit, whilst those who don't, blown away like chaff. Which brings me to my fourth observation on this psalm. It has absolutely no middle ground at all. There's no room here for compromise. You are either living the perfect life or you're not. You're either righteous or you're wicked. You're either innocent or you're guilty. You're either living a life that conforms to God's purpose for your life or you're ignoring God and disrupting the good ordering of creation. You're either happy or you're unhappy. You're either well-orientated or you're disintegrating. For this psalmist... The connection between devotion and destiny is non-negotiable. You will stand or fall according to your faithfulness to the law of God. And then taking all these points together, we start to get a picture emerging of who this psalm was written by and who it was probably written for. It's a psalm for the elite, for the well-off, for the economically secure, the potentially significant, the self-assured in life. It's a psalm for those who experience life's breaks as usually falling their way and who want to believe that they deserve their good fortune, that they have, in some way, made their own luck. But there's another aspect of Psalm 1 that I'd like us to notice, And this is the way that it justifies its deuteronomic perspective by appealing to the rhythms of nature. Psalms such as this are often called the creation psalms, and they tend to present the theology that they hold as a natural outworking of creation itself. Their message is that this is the way things are because this is the way God has made them to be and a creation-orientated theological perspective such as this will typically be articulated by the more powerful people in society, because social conservatism finds a natural partner in creation spirituality. The truth is that the experience of a well-ordered life for some is always going to be achieved at the expense of others whose lives are not so well-ordered. Those on the winning end of the formula of life want to keep those on the losing end firmly in their place. Otherwise, we end up with revolutions and such like. So claiming that it is this way because God has made it this way can become a powerful justification for social control. A few weeks ago, when I was preaching, I cited the example of the 20th century creation hymn, greatly loved by many of us and often sung in Sunday school. Let's listen to the words again all things bright and beautiful. This is a creation psalm, isn't it? All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, he made their glowing colors, he made their tiny wings. It's another idealized version of creation skating over the reality of the death and destruction that are also part of nature's rhythm and cycle. It is a sanitized, child-friendly hymn, embedding in the psyche of those who sing it as children, a conviction that all is as it is because God has made it that way. And the corresponding conviction sneaks in along with it that the way things are is the way God wants them to be. But as we noted a couple of weeks ago when this hymn was originally written it had a more sinister verse which thankfully we don't sing anymore but it highlights the social conservatism inherent in such creation spirituality. The rich man in his castle the poor man at his gate God made them high or lowly and ordered their estate. My friend Mark Woods uh, Baptist minister and one-time editor of the Baptist Times wrote an interesting article on this hymn um, and noted particularly the context in which the author Cecil Francis Alexander wrote these words Um, Muttwood says of the hymn the real tragedy behind that verse lies in where and when it was written Mrs Alexander was rooted in Protestant Ireland and was a stalwart defender of the establishment The rich man in his castle that she was writing of was an English Protestant. The poor man at his gate was an Irish peasant. The Irish potato famine killed a million people in Ireland between 1845 and 1852, causing another million to migrate mainly to the United States. There were terrible scenes as tenants were evicted from their cottages, unable to pay the rent. Cannibalism was not unknown such was the starvation level, and the government's response was completely inadequate, and all things bright and beautiful was written whilst the Irish potato famine was at its height. Mark Woods goes on, there is no reason to suppose Mrs. Alexander was anything other than horrified by the famine whose effects she must have seen, but there is something chilling at the thought that she could live through such an experience and remain completely unchallenged by any thoughts that things ought to be different that God did not order the estate of those who were dying of hunger and cold whilst others were well fed and warm and here we have the problem in a nutshell creation hymns which celebrate the good order of creation are typically representative of the perspective of those for whom life is good And they can so easily become not only a self-justifying defense of the status quo, I am wealthy and well-fed because God has blessed me, but they can also become a mechanism for social control. You are not wealthy and well-fed because God has ordered it to be that way. And this embeds in those who sing these hymns, be they wealthy or poor, an attitude of obedience and acquiescence and a resistance to rebellion. And so Psalm 1 articulates a creation theology of obedience, striking a note of Torah observance as the basis for a good and godly life. But before we close our Bibles and give up on Psalm 1 altogether, I think there is another perspective we can explore here that might help us. Because whenever God is at work, things are rarely quite as they appear to be. We've been reading someone from the perspective of its author, as a piece of theology to justify the powerful and control the powerless. But as is so often the case, when you read it from a different perspective, it starts to sound rather different. Someone condemns those that it calls the wicked those who it says fail to keep the commands of the law. It doesn't actually condemn the poor or the vulnerable. It doesn't condemn the weak or the defenseless. In fact, it offers those whose experience of life is terrible, a glimmer of hope that God's good intent for creation transcends the present reality of human suffering. And elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm 10, Psalm 37, it becomes clear that the wicked in life are in fact those who oppress the poor and the needy. And Walter Brueggemann, the great Christian scholar of the Psalms, suggests that Psalms such as this, he says they provide a point of reference even for those who share in none of the present goodies but who cling in hope to the conviction that God's good intention for creation will finally triumph and there will be an equity and a Sabbath for all of God's creatures. In other words, Psalms such as Psalm 1 can function to create a thought world where God rewards the faithful. Well, if that's the case, Those who are currently experiencing life as catastrophe can reasonably start to hope that they will get their reward in some other way at some other time. It can sow the seeds of hope in the lives of those whose lives are otherwise hopeless. And for some, this becomes the hope of heaven. And you get emerging within Judaism in the centuries before Jesus, a strand of belief that looks to the afterlife for the righting of the wrongs of this world. But this too is open to abuse by the powers that be because they can then keep people subservient in this life by promising them liberation in the next. But other more radical strands also emerge, suggesting that whilst God's ideal world may be one where the faithful are rewarded, the reality of this present world is sometimes that the faithful suffer unjustly and the wicked, who oppress the poor, go unpunished. But rather than pushing the solution for this into some far-flung heavenly future, we start to get a perspective emerging of people who adopt the principle of seeking to bring God's future into the present. To take the doctrine of the far-flung future, the eschaton, and realise it in the present. We begin to get emerging within ancient Judaism and within Christianity, a view that is known as realised eschatology, where the future justice that the Psalms speak of become present in our world now. This is the theology behind Jesus saying to his disciples that the kingdom of God is drawing near through his ministry of healing and reconciliation. This is the theology of the Lord's Prayer, where Christians pray that God's kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. This is the theology of social transformation, as God's people are motivated to overthrow the powers of oppression and bring into being a world of justice here and now. And Walter Brueggemann notes that a psalm of social control can become a psalm of social anticipation, which can in turn become a psalm of social criticism, which can in turn become a psalm of revolution. And so we discover here what Martin Luther King declared at the height of his struggle against racism, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but that it bends towards justice. And those who seek to construct theologies of control will ironically, in the end, discover that their liturgies of domination contain within themselves the seeds of their own destruction as stories of oppression give way to narratives of liberation. The Deuteronomic perspective ultimately fails in the face of the Exodus and the Exile. As God's nature is revealed, not as the God of the status quo, but as the God of disruption. And this trajectory continues into the life and ministry of Jesus, who declared of the man born blind, that neither this man nor his parents sinned, and then proceeded to heal him on the Sabbath, to the great consternation of the Pharisees. And this trajectory continues into the life and ministry of of the Church of Christ's followers. It continues to us, as we too are called to resist all attempts to enshrine power and justify privilege. And we are instead called to declare that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, bringing freedom and liberation to all through the life and ministry of those who follow Jesus.
2: We've got some panellists today. Andrea, who was going to bring us some prayers later, so that's what she was expecting and she wasn't expecting this. And Liz, who maybe has, was expecting this, it so might have got some thoughts up her sleeve and hopefully Nick with in New York. So who, sh- who would like to kick off with a thought from today's sermon?
0: Um, I would just briefly say that uh, I've always liked this reading because it usually brings me back to earth and reminds me what's important. Because I think when you're living life, you forget that any anything can be taken away from you at any time, um, whether that's life itself, uh, money, um, especially when you have a lot of money, you forget that it can actually go. And I'm sure this past year a lot of people have realised that. Um, but, yeah, it just um, reminds me what's important and... Um,
2: what matters. So, yeah. Thank you, Nick. Yes, I just love the, uh, the reference to the, the Lord's Prayer that Simon brought in of thy kingdom come, and that idea that there's a sort of hope of something, uh, an inbreaking of God's kingdom into our world here today, which he referenced as with long words like realized eschatology. But yes.
3: <laughs> well, um, yeah, you can go. Sorry? Have oh, we got this mic Just keep it, Okay, yeah, it's on. Um, I'm just small. Um, it's interesting that Simon mentioned who the wicked were because that song has been kind of, I guess, misused or interpreted as people wanted to interpret it. Like in my church, or the wicked were the people who didn't come to church on Sunday or the people who went to nightclubs. And it was just a very, it, it was very obvious, like as Simon said, the, the, um, like the separation between, oh, you're perfect and you come to church. And obviously you're not perfect if you come to church and then you're wicked because you don't come to church. And that was, that was pretty unhealthy. Um, so I love the first half of the psalm, but the second half is always, has always been a bit,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, yeah. It made me remember when i'm sometimes going to church felt excruciating because it felt like you had to be perfect and happy and shiny and to admit that anything wasn't absolutely just brilliant and wonderful in your life was just a disaster and uh, so you couldn't really be real and it's So uh, yeah I, th-
4: I think um the thing i was i was jotting down a few things because i didn't know just before <laughs> the sermon that i was going to be doing this um and the thing that i write wrote down and i I know i've said it before in other panel discussions but i think it's become my theme for this year really is the the need to change perspective and so for me the 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 kind of the change of perspective thing is key and um i I love the um the new testament reading actually at the end where jesus um i I didn't write it down word for word but where jesus ends up saying i've come so that those who see don't see and those who don't see see so that that kind of um perspective thing um I think when thinking about the psalm I I realized that for me it's a challenge um to try and change perspective but also to try and therefore allow that change to change my attitude to things as well and um But I also am acutely aware of the damage that people often have because they have been taught certain things that have been unhealthy for such a long while that it can be really hard to change perspective. So I think that almost people saying you have to change perspective and you have to be able to see the hope can become in itself quite guilt-inducing. So it's kind of... I do see hope in it, even in the psalm, in the idea that, that actually there are other ways of looking at it and that, that, um, that actually, for me, the whole conversion thing is about trying to, and sometimes I have to force myself to, each day, see things differently. Um, and that is where the hope is, and I don't always get there. But, um, yeah, that's what I, I took from it, really. But, yeah, the psalm is problematic, But I love the fact that in the whole of the Psalms, there's just so many different Psalms and there are ones that are angry and there are ones that are, so I kind of take some hope from that.
2: (laughs) Brilliant, Liz, go for it. Thank you very much. I don't know if there's anything, I think Simon's got some, he's going to read out some of the chat.
1: Yeah, sure. So we have a couple of comments that have come through in the chat from people who are joining us online. Uh, Micah points us to Walter Brueggemann's book, The Spirituality of the Psalms, uh, which I heartily recommend and I I shall be stealing from shamelessly in coming weeks. Um, He says uh, that Brueggemann offers a perspective that the Psalms might be categorised as Psalms of orientation, disorientation and reorientation. Uh, Micah goes on, but I love the idea that God is a God of disorientation. God is as present in the moments of bad luck as in the good luck. But in moments of bad luck, there seems to be less in the way of feeling God's presence. When we're forced to face God in the midst of disorientation, we see God's face revealed in a way we miss in so many other places. I love the idea that the Psalms are never stuck in any of those categories because the Psalm of orientation can become one of disorientation, depending on our societal status. (laughs) and then one of reorientation, as it calls us to enacting the world God demands us to concrete, to co-create with her. And Jeff says, uh, the 19th century view was that predestination was the rule, that God had a plan and all events were planned Um, sort of true Jeff, there were free will Baptists and predestination Baptists, but anyway, this changed in the First World War, when it turned out that the mathematics modeling based on probabilities gave a view that there was a better matched reality, so now we see a God that calls and adapts that calling as the situation changes.
2: Yes, I think we all need lunch now. Um, (laughs) That was great. Yes, I think we all, there's a sense that we all need a bit of orientation as this pandemic sort of moves along. And it's, uh, yeah, but I think perspective, let's try and take away. If we can try and find ways to look at things from different perspectives, that's actually very helpful. So I think we are drawing to the end of this discussion and we're going to wind it up now.
3: Loving God, hear our prayers. Hear our prayers for the church. As we continue with the process of discernment for our future, uh, we ask you to allow your wisdom to guide us at our meeting next week and after as we we go forward. Loving God, hear our prayers for our city where so many different people live, where oppression, and freedom coexist. We pray for your justice to shine through. We pray for the activists, the volunteers, and the people trying to make a difference. We also pray for the world as we emerge back into the light and friends and family can see each other. We are grateful for the scientists the lab workers, and all the frontline workers who have carried us through this pandemic. We ask for your strength to continue to support them as the fight continues. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: And uh, we finish our service this morning with a blessing. So let us say the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and evermore. Amen.